this is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Julia Talbot-Jones, Senior Lecturer in the School of Government at the University of Wellington. Julia studies how institutions solve environmental and natural resource problems with a particular focus on rights of nature approaches. We talk about Julia's work on the formalization of rights of nature, which is a topic we've discussed before in this podcast during my interview with Aaron O'Donnell. And Julia and Aaron are in fact collaborators on this topic. The formal rights of nature approach is ideally meant to instill into our laws a more intrinsic valuation of nature rather than viewing nature only instrumentally. Julia and I talked about maybe the most famous case of the formalization of rights to nature, this being the Wanganui River in Aotearoa, New Zealand. This in turn has been used as the basis for other rights of river approaches in other countries. But Julia cautions against the application of formal rules without local culture and context, which cannot be so easily copied. I think this is one of the main challenges of a formal rights of nature approach, that it cannot be expressed only in formal rules, it needs to be reflected in a different way of viewing the natural world, which cannot be so easily legislated. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Julia Talbot-Jones. So Julia, the, the question I, I now love to start every interview with is what I call the origin story question. Uh, it's, it's mostly about your professional path, but that of course can intersect with personal developments as well. And you can kind of answer this however you want. The first work of yours that I read was your PhD thesis on the Wanganui River and using the institution analysis and development framework to examine that as an example of the rights for nature movement, but doing so from an institutional perspective. And I've since read several of your articles that are also looking at the the rights of rivers movement as an example of this broader rights for nature perspective. So could we start by you just describing what led you to be interested in this topic for your thesis and then subsequently? Sure. Um, Well, I have a bit of a twisty pathway. Um, I didn't come into my PhD with the expectation of looking at this rights of nature or legal personhood concept. Instead, I was sort of interested in trying to think about alternative ways that we can encourage the provision of in-stream flow in a water system and thinking about different governance regimes that might increase cooperation um, and collective action situations. Um, And I was, I entered the my PhD at the Australian National University, um, pretty unprepared, probably. Um, And I'd come out of the US system uh, where you have a bridging period where you've got your two years of coursework or whatever to sort of figure out what your program and interest might be. Um, Whereas in in the British system, which the Australian New Zealand system mimic, um, you arrive, and you start. And so I arrived and was meant to start. So I went to my supervisor and said, look, I've got an idea. If we have a water market, what happens if we treat the river as a person and then the river can participate in the water market and buy rights and say what they want and whatever, and maybe they have their own preferences and that can influence how the water market is designed and who makes choices over particular domains. Um, And my supervisor uh, came from a neoclassical perspective and he said, no, economics is very anthropocentric. You cannot have um, a river participating in the market because when we make decisions, it's from a human perspective. So I went away and I Googled river as person. And lo and behold, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where I'm originally from and where I am speaking to you from now, um, they were proposing to give this river legal rights. And this was the Whanganui River um, in the North Island of New Zealand. And so that became the basis of my PhD. And it took a different shape to what I expected, but 
because I had to take sort of 14 steps back to take one step forward. Nobody had really looked at this before from an institutional perspective. And so my questions um, became quite simple in a way. They were about trying to understand how this institutional framework might work and what some of the implications might be. Um, and so that's how I arrived at this legal personhood or rights of nature approach. It wasn't um, coming from a perspective of really wanting to understand this new arrangement because nobody was really talking about it um, back in 2000 and whatever year, 13 when I started. Um, it was rather about trying to understand whether this could be an alternative arrangement for increasing in-stream flow um, in a water system. Julia, can you say for listeners who aren't familiar with the term what you mean by in-stream flow? So um, it's another name for environmental flows, but I often use in-stream flow because it can encompass all of those elements that uh, motivate people to keep water in a system as opposed to out. So it might be environmental reasons, but it also might be cultural reasons. It might be recreational reasons. They might be um, passive use values, all kinds of reasons you might want to keep water in a system as opposed to taking it out. So that's why I talk about it as in-stream flow rather than just environmental flows. Okay. And am I correct in, in thinking that I hear that your initial interest in this was kind of instrumentalist in, in asking, okay, is this another tool that we can use to promote conservation? Were you interested in it as a kind of governance tool? Yeah, absolutely. So I was more interested in it from, a, from an economics perspective, whether we could use it in a way that would be efficient and effective for governing or looking after, at this stage, a water system. Okay. And... How did you convince your advisor that this was a legitimate thing to do? Uh, it took some time. Um, but I think what helped, um, and it's still taking time to convince a lot of economists um, that it's a topic worth pursuing. Um, but what helped in my case is that I had a strong conceptual framework for analyzing this problem that was grounded in a strong tradition of institutional economics. So I um, used Ostrom's institutional analysis and development framework to analyze this problem. And then I moved on to um, game theory and economic experiments to try and test um, what some of the implications or estimate what some of the implications might be. So there was, even though it was kind of a radical idea at that time, the fact that I could ground it in a methodology that was well-tested um, gave it some validity and robustness. Okay. So speaking of the Ostrom approach, so I know that you use the IID framework, the Institution Analysis and Development Framework, and part of that is well, this is not exactly a part of it, but it's related to this kind of broader Ostrom approach is this idea of a property regime. And it's this is not exclusively Ostrom at all, right? There's a large literature in, in the property rights discourse about property regimes. And in one of your papers that I read in preparation for this, I think it was in the Eco Ecological Economics with Jeff Bennett, you all have this table that I really liked. It was It, it produced one of these aha moments for me where you kind of talk about these different property regimes. And so we have, you know, public, private, and then Lynn came along and said to everyone that we can have common as well. And you have this one that you refer to as uh, resource self-determination. And this is something I've been trying to, trying to figure out for, for myself better is, can we think about when we talk about rights for rights of nature, right? What is a property regime doing? Well, it's pointing at the at the at the category, the social category that has the rights, right? So if it's common property, we're pointing at communities. If it's public property, we're pointing at the state. Although 
I've been re recently reading some work by Carol Rose that talks that kind of complicates that. All of these are broad categories that could be complicated a lot. But I'm wondering as an initial question, does it make sense to you to think about a kind of natural, natural property regime is not the right word because natural is also used as an adjective more generally. But this kind of, what do you, this is the version of the question. What do you mean by a kind of a property regime of resource self-determination that points at nature as having uh, the rights? Do you think of it as a property regime then? So I think the, um, when it comes to the rights of nature or rights for nature um, or the legal personhood literature, um, there's a lack of analysis around um, trying to understand and disentangle the behavioural implications of granting nature or rivers legal rights. Um, and from a policy perspective, this means that we don't really understand whether what the costs and benefits will be of implementing this approach. And again, from a policy perspective, you should only really be applying a new governance framework or arrangement if you think the net benefits, preferably the marginal net benefits, will be better than the status quo, okay? Mm -hmm. And so with this idea of legal rights for nature, we need to know what the net benefits might be from implementing this approach, whether it be for rivers or mountaintops or national parks or open spaces or whatever. And so one advantage about taking a property rights approach or applying a property rights lens to the legal personhood concept is it starts to give you an understanding of who has decision-making authority over a particular domain and who might therefore be the winners and losers from shifting your governance arrangement from the status quo to this new setting. And so, because when we talk about property rights, if you take Commons definition in his 1968 paper, what you're basically doing is talking about the rules that grant authority over a particular domain. And so when you grant people decision-making authority, you're giving people a lot of power. Um, and that can potentially change the incentives that are operating and also the wealth distribution within a group. Um, and so that's why I think you can apply the property rights lens to this problem of legal personhood or uh, rights of nature. And it can help policymakers think more strategically around what the implications of this governance arrangement might be. I mean, that makes sense, Julie. When I was reading through the Wanganui case and exposing myself to other parts of this literature, you know, part of my understanding of what we're talking about here is a, move, a formalization movement. It's trying to formalize, and in Aaron O'Donnell's terms, make legible to the law um, these ideas of, of natural personhood vis-a-vis. -vis, so it's natural personhood transforming into legal personhood. So this is, it's a process of formalization and legalization, sometimes to reflect what I perceive to be kind of culturally evolved norms, seemingly in the Wanganui case, but not necessarily, which is one of the questions I wanted to ask you. And when we're talking about formalization, I think we can often confuse, right? Formal is not informal. It's one of the main dichotomies we deal with in institutional analysis and in the commons field. And we often conflate the two by thinking that what's written down is actually what's happening on the ground. And so part of what I'm hearing you say is, it's all well and good to formalize these things and write down um, words on a paper and pass them into law, but that doesn't tell us how things will actually unfold on the ground. And so we need to study that independently of understanding the language 
And in, 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 the, in the brief period of time I've been reading this literature, there is a strong emphasis on a lot of the formal language, which leaves you often wondering, okay, but like, how are things playing out? Who actually has decision-making power and incentives on the ground? And what are the outcomes of that? That's kind of what Absolutely. I hear you saying. Yeah, and because when you think about property rights, the things that make them effective or not um, is whether they are well-defined. So that means it's very clear who has those rights um, and also whether they can be enforced. Um, to have a really efficient situation, you probably want those rights to be transferable as well, but that doesn't always happen in many governance arrangements. So at least you want them to be defined and defended. And exactly as you say, there's a difference between what can be written down on paper and what's the working rules in use. So what's actually happening on the ground. And when it comes to many of these rights of nature cases, um, it's still, we're still waiting to see how they'll play out on the ground. Um, but for them to be effective, you do need to have them well-defined and um, enforceable. Okay. So Julie, can we take those observations and apply them to the Wanganui case? And could we start with um, an introduction to the case, essentially? Could you give me a little bit of the history that led to um, the passage of, I believe it's called the Te Awa Tupua Act in 2017. What were the, what some, what is some of the history that led to that culmination? Sure. So the um, Whanganui River uh, starts in the center of the North Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And so we have um, coming up in the middle of the island, several big volcanoes that stick up. And the local stories here, the indigenous Maori stories, talk about a love story that um, drove one of the mountains far away um, from Taranaki, far away from Ruapehu, um, and as it moved away, it, it carved um, the Wanganui River out of the landscape. And so for local iwi, um, which is the local Maori tribe, um, they have a long-standing relationship with this river, the Wanganui River. Um, and for them, it's not simply a river, but it's a living being. It's one of their ancestors. Um, and it's from whom they've all descended. Um, and so this, this way of knowing and this indigenous way of thinking will probably resonate with some of your listeners who come from indigenous cultures where um, there is no dominion of humans over nature. Um, you're, you are the same as the rocks, as the rivers, as the trees. Um, and so Honganui have had a long-standing relationship with this river, but it's also New Zealand's longest navigable river. Navigable, I always have trouble saying that word. Um, which, so when, um, European settlers started coming along in the 1800s. Um, they quickly started settling around that river and using it as a transport route. Um, and as the government in New Zealand, the Crown was formed, it became a priority to figure out ways to gain formal con legal control over that river. And so there was a series of legislation that passed through the 1800s and into the 1900s as well, um, and through to the 1960s and onwards, where basically the Crown increased their formal control over that system. Um, but since the 1870s, Whanganui Iwi have challenged that ownership or those property rights um, through 
all sorts of channels, whether that be through petitions to court, sorry, petitions to parliament, through court cases, um, through protest. So, um, and Wanganui Iwi's position is that they never relinquish control or ownership of that river. Um, and so we have in 1840 in Aotearoa, um, there was a treaty signed between some of the local Maori people and the Crown, the British Crown. Um, and that's called the Treaty of Waitangi. Um, and this, um, there, are, there are different articles within that treaty, but um, the position of the, the issue around the treaty is there were inconsistent translations. Um, and so since um, the 1980s, we've had what's called the Waitangi Tribunal here in New Zealand, which was set up to de deal with disputes over the treaty. And um, in this way, um, one of the major outputs that they have put forward um, was a, a tribunal decision looking at the case of the Wanganui River because this was a continuously contested area for um, over a hundred years. And so in um, the 1990s, a um, tribunal report came out that um, suggested that Iwi had proprietary rights um, over the Wanganui River. Um, and that the Crown would have to enter formal negotiations to resolve these issues. Um, and so formal negotiations then began in the early 2000s and they broke down. Um, so the Crown and Iwi entered negotiations to try and resolve these ownership and property rights disputes, um, but they were unsuccessful. They started again in 2008, and in this case, in the, this time, um, the Crown and Iwi came to the table, and their opening position was, the Crown said, we're not going to transfer ownership or property rights to Iwi, and Iwi said, it's not okay for the Crown to retain ownership and property rights. So they had to figure out an alternative pathway to navigate the fact that the Crown currently held ownership and that wasn't okay. And the Crown has said that it's not okay for Iwi to hold ownership. So they knew that was the starting position and they had to figure out an alternative way to basically navigate their property rights challenge. Um, and also what came out on the table is that when, if you think about this river um, through uh, the local iwi's lens or worldview, they don't think about it in traditional property rights Western terms around ownership. They think about it in terms of relationships and in terms of responsibility. So again, this, this way of that the Crown would approach this of like either transferring ownership from one group to another wasn't going to work. So you had these two facets where the Crown has said Iwi can't retain control and Iwi has said the Crown can't retain control. And you also have this um, desire for the local Iwi to have their worldview integrated into law. And so what emerged out of eight years of negotiation in this case was the legal framework um, that then was put into law through the Te Awa Tupua Wanganui River Claim Settlement Act uh, that you referred to um, that was passed in 2017. And this idea of granting um, river, le uh, river legal rights 
was a mechanism, a practical mechanism for um, integrating the local Maori worldview into Western law. So it wasn't coming at it saying, hey, let's, let's try and action this rights of nature approach. It was saying, we need to recognize this river as a living being. How can we do that in a pragmatic way? And so this legal personhood approach was used as a tool to do that. Okay. Well, as I expected, there's a, there's a lot here. I mean, so there's uh, a legacy of colonialism and, and deep contestation here. There's competing worldviews. And it leads me to one of the questions I wanted to make sure to ask you. I think this is a good time for it. So one of the questions I've had about the rights of nature approach is whether or not it's susceptible to a kind of fortress conservation mentality. Right, if we're giving rights to nature, does that mean we're taking rights away from people based on some assumption about a win-lose relationship between people and nature? Can people use nature and steward it at the same time if we assume um, that that can't happen, then maybe we assume that we need to give rights to nature, but then thereby take away rights to the people that we were assuming were harming nature. And there's a history of that, right? There's a history of, as I said, um, fortress conservation, outsiders coming in, disenfranchising local folks. And so that's been a question I've had about the rights of nature movement, right? And, and, it, and it reflects to some extent the discourse about property regimes generally, whereby they're sometimes seen to be in conflict with each other, right? We have private property rights or we have public property rights and some naive discourses say, well, these have to be in tension with each other because things are either owned by the state or by people. So there's this history of viewing property regimes as being antagonistic to each other. And one of the things that seems so prominent in this case that moves it away from that space is that a lot of the impetus for this personalization of the river and the rights of nature was that it's reflecting the eerie Maori's perspective. And so it was, it was kind of almost, in some ways, it's the opposite. It's not dis systematically disenfranchising local environmental users. It's in fact, reflecting their understanding of their relationship with the environment. How is it as a first pass towards this? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. I mean, but at the same time, it's not, it's not like a quote unquote pure example of reflecting indigenous or traditional or local worldviews because there is this, because there's this contestation, as you just said, it's a bit of a compromise between these competing worldviews and these two sides that needed to figure out a way forward, but a way forward that was never going to um, only privilege one at the expense of the other. I mean, the concern that you hear when you think about the legalization of cultural norms, cultural traditions, is that those traditions kind of can't get cannibalized by the formality and by the and by the legalization, such that the spirit of of those traditions gets kind of left behind. And when I interviewed Aaron O'Donnell, we talked about that a lot as well. That's kind of like the worry that you have with formalization, right? Is that things that get written down in a law don't ultimately reflect the informal norms and values, even if we're trying hard to reflect those. And so that's kind of another piece of this puzzle is even though this is better than maybe, this isn't fortress conservation, this isn't saying that, okay, rights of nature at all costs. And in fact, is saying the rights of nature is symbiotic with the rights of humans. There's still this tension between the Maori worldview and their indigenous beliefs and the Western legal framework. Totally. I think there's two important points to emphasize in response to what you've said. Um, to understand this concept that was applied to Te Awatupua, or the Wanganui River, you have to take off a Western lens. So you have to start thinking about this from the perspective of the fact that there is no separation between people 
and place. That they are interconnected. And so when you talk about there being tensions, that was one of the critical questions in my PhD. I was just like, because when you think about it from a property rights lens or an anthropocentric lens or an economics lens or a Western lens, whatever kind of lens you want to think about it through, there are obvious tensions there. And the response of almost everybody I spoke to was that there was no tension. And that is because when you think about the relationship between this river and the people of that place, they are one and the same. So it removes that tension. Mm -hmm. Now, from a practical perspective, I'm like, well, you can't really remove that tension. That tension is always going to be there. But what this, for this piece of legislation to work, you need to have trust in the fact that there is no separation between the river and the people. And you just have to trust that. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, yeah. that is something that can't be formalized, you know, exactly what you were saying. There, there's, you, you try and convey some of these concepts in formal law and you miss the nuances. And, but that's why this particular piece of legislation is very embedded in place. Yeah. So it's not something that you could necessarily pick up and place somewhere else, which is what other cultures and other places have been trying to do. They've looked at the formal rules and said, oh, this is a nice idea. We can apply it to this context. What an interesting way to govern or look after these resources. But what they're missing is those cultural values that really do underpin this legislation and the people who are working within this framework understand what those underlying values are. And even though it is very, you can't translate all of these concepts and this thinking into formal law. And this um, is the second point that you touched on, how do you pick up these 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 informal rules essentially and trans informalize them. It was a very um, open acknowledgement uh, within the communities that were working on this legislation that this wasn't a perfect approximation of the indigenous worldview. They weren't trying to get a perfect um, approximation. Instead, they were getting trying to get something that would work for this place. And they were very, the negotiators were very practical from that perspective. And so there's, in the broader literature, there's pushback against the rights of nature concept in some spaces, because they say it doesn't appropriately capture the indigenous worldview um, and through formal law in this way. But in the Wanganui River case, they, they were very, they, they still are very open that it was, it's an imperfect approximation. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's the two things that occur to me to talk about <clears throat> next is, I mean, this, this statement, you have to kind of remove your Western lens is always seems like it's easier said than done because it's like, okay, I know I need to do that, but then what are the actual concrete steps? Because it's, it's, it's a lot of it is, you know, I can say, I can recite the words, okay, the Maori iwi and the river are not distinct. They are, they are kind of inner identifiable, which is just a horribly awkward way to say it. Um, but I can't, like my brain kind of says those words without kind of internalizing them and being affected by them. And I think that's part of the challenge here is, is a lot of this feels like it's, it's very, you, you kind of grow these things from the bottom up. You can't say, okay, well, I'm just suddenly going to feel this way. It's based on experiences as you have and the place where you are and the people you're with. And I haven't had those experiences and been in those places with those people. So it's hard to kind of be like, okay, 
I can kind of say these words, but it doesn't mean that my brain has kind of made this fundamental shift. Well, I think that's one of the areas that is really ripe for future research. Mm. And I think it needs to be explored in more detail, the role of values in the rights of nature approach. Mm. Uh, and there, its effectiveness, essentially, as a legal or an environmental tool. Because in the case um, of uh, the Whanganui River, the people who were involved in developing the framework, they're very aware of the fact that they want to use it, they want to use the formal rules as a mechanism to try and shift people's values and understanding around this river. Because they recognize that you can just say these rules, but you don't really understand them. And what they want to say is come to this place, mm. feel the power of this river, realize that it is alive, travel down it, spend time here. Right. And then you might start to have a different perspective around our relationship with that river. And um, I think this is one of the real challenges, as I said, with the rights of nature approach, is if you don't have those underlying values bases, it does become just another legal tool. Mm -hmm. And um, then you start saying, well, will it be more or less effective? And it depends on people's interpretations and whatever. So, right. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, the idea of the, the argument or the observation that there's no substitute for direct experience, right? I feel like that's been, actually, there has been research in, on human environment interactions that there's really you know, direct exposure as a, as, as a child to nature changes who you are and how you relate to it, but it's not something you're, you're not taught it. You're not led to it. It's something that you have to kind of, um, be very participating in yourself. You have to be in the woods yourself. You have to engage in that experience yourself and you have to be leading part of it yourself. It can't, it's not a lecture that you need. That's going to internalize, um, these ideas. So Julie, the, the, I wanna make sure I also ask you about your use of the, the institutional analysis and development framework to unpack the kind of practical implications of this act. How did it all pan out? Because again, it's one thing to write this down, but ultimately at the end of the day, and this is something that's come out in the rights of nature literature that I've been reading, right? Um, what are the actual positions to use a kind of IAD term that implement this idea? Because nature itself, it's, it's not a human position. There's not like nature, you can't assign nature a human position to be a, a guardian or to have to be an enforcer, right? Um, so how did the act ultimately implement these ideas? I know that there's this concept of of a guardian of nature. And so let's start with that. What, who was actually assigned to be, to implement this? Um, so the big thing about the Wanganui River case is the legal personhood aspect is only, or the granting rights to the river is only one tiny part of the institutional arrangement. Um, and so the legal personhood part was the way of navigating that property rights or that ownership question that I outlined at the start. The thing that gives it legitimacy is the broader institutional arrangement that supports um, this legal personhood concept. And so part of that is when it came to the act itself, um, the outset is recognizing the river as a living being. Um, and so then they use this concept of legal fictions to um, create a legal person. And they name this legal person Te Awa Tupua. And it incorporates all the physical and metaphysical aspects of life and essentially the catchment. Okay. Um, 
And then what they do is they transfer property rights from the Crown to the river itself. So they transfer property rights, I should be more uh, precise here, they transfer property rights to the riverbed from the Crown to Te Awatupua. So then Te Awatupua, because once you create a legal person, that legal person can enter contracts, hold property and sue. So it's just like a corporation or a trust or a ship. Some ships have legal rights. Or, um, and they transfer property rights to Te Awatupua to the riverbed itself. Then they create this broader sorry, institutional framework to support Te Awatupua. And part of that means assigning or appointing guardians to speak on the river's behalf. And that's what you just referred to. And so in the case of the Whanganui River, you have two guardians, one appointed by the Crown and one appointed by Whanganui Iwi. And each guardian appointed has to be approved by the other party. Um, so you have two guardians whose responsibility is to speak on behalf of the river and to speak in the river's interests. And then you have a broader, an even broader institutional framework full of actors and groups that are supporting the guardians. So advisory groups, you've got community-based groups, which are bringing together all the interests of the river, including the um, power station that operates a dam at the headwaters of the river, which diverts currently 85% 80, of the headwaters. So there's a huge amount of water taken out of that system at the moment. But this community group aims to bring together all the diverse interests involved um, in using and managing the river uh, so that they can talk together in a room. So you have a broader set of um, actors involved in decision-making, and then you have a series of rules around the types of decisions and the, the strategies and things that they have to develop. One thing that's um, different about this piece of legislation compared with um, perhaps a standard piece of legislation is at the outset, they also define a set of values that has to guide everybody's decision-making. So, and these values come from um, the local iwi or the, the, the worldview, te ao Māori, um, the worldview of the local iwi. So these values um, outline how everybody should behave and how they should think about their relationship with the river. Okay, with that all on board, I want to return to something you said earlier about the importance of having well-defined rights, because that seems to be one of the challenges here. And this also, at least in my mind, relates to this part of the Te Awatupua Act, which creates this Te Awatupua as this legal entity which, okay, I understand you said now has rights to the Wanganui Riverbed. I have that right? And it refers to it as a indivisible and living whole, which feels like potentially a very powerful language, right? There is a long history of uh, kind of bureaucratic style. It's always, I always struggle a little bit to pick a keyword here bureaucratic style governance, which is, you know, single species fishery governance. It's picking one aspect of a system. All of industrial agriculture could be criticized in this way. Picking one aspect of a system, telling yourself you're optimizing your management for the maximal yield from, of that aspect, if, if you're even doing that. But then there's been an important counter movement, which you could call holistic ecosystem management that says, well, no, we can't just focus on that one piece. We have to think about the whole because ultimately everything's connected. And if we only manage for one thing, what we don't see through our myopic lens will ultimately undercut what we're actually trying to manage for. So there's a lot happening here, obviously, but 
it seems like an important piece of this is towards a more holistic view. But at the end of the day, there are rights that need to be assigned. And as you said, those rights need to be well-defined. So the question I have for you is, how well does this case tackle those challenges based on these different actors and their responsibilities? And as we now understand the values that, that the system is trying to imbue all the actors with, how clear were the, the rights defined to try to have some kind of holistic governance of the system? Um, mixed, I would say. Um, and I think that will be one of the real long-standing tensions around um, operationalizing this legal personhood concept in the context of the Wanganui River. So um, you touched on, again, the fact that they transferred rights to the riverbed to Te Awa Tupua. What the Act explicitly does is exclude water. So they transfer rights to the riverbed, but they said there's no rights to water um, transferred. Because in New Zealand or Aotearoa, we have a position, depending on who's uh, leading the government at, at the point in time, but either that everyone owns the water or no one owns the water. And part of the reason that we have this ambiguity is proprietary interests in water have never been resolved when it comes to uh, the Treaty of Waitangi. Um, and so even in legislation, the legislation that should govern uh, water use, there is a huge amount of ambiguity when it comes to who holds property rights over water. And it comes back to this question of it's never been resolved under the treaty. So in the case of the Wanganui River, they say, cool, we've transferred these riverbed rights, but we're excluding water. And they say, where this act covers everything within the catchment, or it's a living being, uh, physical and metaphysical, so even all the um, spiritual and energy aspects, but we're excluding water. Which seems like a big and thing to exclude when we're talking about rights of a river, to be clear. seems like a big thing to exclude when we're talking about rights of a river. And I think if there are periods of tension in the future, um, particularly when the Tongariro power development that operates the dam at the top, when their resource consent, which is permission for them to take water out of the system, comes up for renewal, um, there, this will be a key uh, topic of discussion. Okay. And I suppose the other thing um, to emphasize is um, it's because this hasn't been tested in a New Zealand court system yet, it's um, unclear how well the rights will be enforced or how they will be enforced. Okay. And that's expected to happen at some point that they will be tested in court? Well, I don't know. Like, okay. Okay. They're coming. I mean, when again, when I when they were developing this framework, and I was um, conducting my PhD research, that was one of my key questions. What happens mm. if the river sues or needs to be sued or anything? Um, and in a very New Zealand fashion, people were like, "Oh, she'll be right. It'll work itself out," <laughs> you know. And um, and that just kind of continues in that vein. Um, but we all know, um, given, well, I shouldn't say we all know, given our earlier discussion, property rights transfer wealth, they transfer power, they, um, they're, they're likely to cause some sort of discussion at some point. Mm -hmm. I mean, all that said, do you view, so so two very related questions. Do you view this as a win for the iwi? And 
at the most macro level, do you view this as more of a success than not? I'm not really one to comment on whether or not it was a win for Iwi. I think um, my response to that question was the the status quo pre um, Te Awa Tupua Act was not working. Transaction costs were really high. It was really inefficient and ineffective. Um, So something needed to change. And given that the process that was taken, so there were, just to emphasize again, there was eight years of negotiation around this. So this wasn't something that, like in the India case, it almost seemed to occur overnight when the Ganges and uh, Yamuna rivers were granted legal rights uh, by the judiciary. In the, in the New Zealand case, it was eight years of negotiation between the affected party and the Crown. Um, and so I don't think they would have reached a resolution if both sides hadn't been happy with it. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, probably in 10 or 15 years, or maybe even now, they're sitting there saying, oh, I wish we'd done things differently. But because that's what comes out of experience and lived experience. But I don't, I think most, both parties must have been happy with the uh with the arrangement at the time the legislation passed okay so so there's another argument actually that you make that i want to make sure that we touch on julia because i think it's really interesting in one of the articles that i read of yours where you say that this represents um an effective bottom-up governance system and this is, again, just like formal versus informal, bottom up versus top down is one of those, it really gets us, you know, commons nerds going, right? We think about it all the time. I've, you know, you know I think about it in my daily life now, like, am I being too bottom up or top, you know, being too top down with some other person in my life? You know, um, we were talking about kids earlier, right? Like, how do you be enough bottom up and let them thrive? But then when do you kind of, you know, put the hammer down? So... Could you talk to me a little bit about that aspect of your interpretation of the case, why you thought it was bottom up? I think, again, you're totally right. There's a real tension between top down and bottom up um, and how you define them. Um, My emphasis in the article that you're referring to, which is one that came out earlier this year, was the fact that this arrangement was driven by the social norms and values of the local community. Um, and it and then formalized through a top-down model. But really, if, it, if the community hadn't been involved in driving this, it wouldn't have taken the shape or the form that it did. Mm-hmm. Um, And so that's where my formulation and thinking around bottom-up comes from in this particular case. Okay, that makes sense, fair enough. Okay, so moving forward, and we talked, I think before I hit the record button, we talked a little bit about your future work and you said you don't wanna make any promises, but this is one of the questions I ask everyone. So I'm still gonna ask it. And you can give a similar or different answer depending on how much you wanna implicitly promise all all of the listeners of the podcast. So moving forward, how much are you staying involved as a researcher in this case? Are you following updates? That's one part of the question. I know you've written again with Aaron O'Donnell about other examples of this, and you mentioned those early in this conversation. And I think in in the observation you made was I found very interesting, right? This seductive synergy between formalization and generalization, right? That if we can just take these formal rules, we can pick them up and plop them down somewhere else. And la-di-da, we're off to the races and everything's going to be fine, irrespective of the overwhelming importance of culture and evolved local norms and how those fit or not with the formalism. So are you interested, though, in further research on other cases like the ones that have happened in India? And my understanding is that those were kind of piggybacking directly on the Wanganui case. 
And you mentioned earlier as well is that this kind of all started with an interest in in-stream flows and some potential market arrangements. And so I'd just love to hear um, you reflect on any aspect of that that you would like. What are some things that get you excited in your future work building on this to more or, or lesser extent? Um, so my future works evolving in all kinds of ways and I'm a bit of an intellectual magpie. I'm, I'm just curious about all kinds of things. So um, I've got some work uh, taking place on marine systems, mm. on indigenous governance, on gender violence um, and backlash. Um, on, I'm just trying to think, on oh, nature-based solutions and the use of wetlands um, and working with really diverse teams across all of those aspects. So it's kind of interesting and exciting. Um, regarding the rights of nature stuff, um, I think it's a really rich area for research. And um, I think the use of dis different disciplinary lenses to tackle some of the complexities around this legal personhood approach would strengthen our understanding um, and our uh, appreciation for what the merits and limitations of the approach might be. So here, even in New Zealand, the Whanganui case we've talked about a lot, but the first um, case that was actually formalized in law in New Zealand was the Te Uruwera, which was a national park that was um, transferred into this legal personhood who that was essentially granted legal rights. Um, so you've got land-based models, you've got river-based models. We've also had a mountaintop uh, here being granted legal rights as well. Um, so understanding how the concept works across different natural features, I think, and comparing um, the viability of it across different types of ecosystems might be useful. Mm -hmm. um, also, I mentioned earlier, I think trying to disentangle the role of values in this rights of nature approach uh, and its it's likely success is really important. Um, and I think undertaking comparative analysis across different cases um, would be useful in that space um, to try and understand how it's working or not working. For instance, we've talked about the Wanganui case today that came from a really strong values position compared with cases that haven't had that same foundation um, and because, as you said, what we know in the commons literature and from previous examples is you can't just pick up one model and apply it somewhere else and expect it to always perform in the same way. It may not necessarily be better or worse, but it may not. It's unlikely to perform in exactly the same way. And I think the rights of nature or legal personhood approaches is exactly the same in that regard. Um, and then. The other question that's I think is interesting is thinking about how this arrangement will or won't work with other governance mechanisms. So um, you can imagine in certain cases, you might be able to layer um, a rights of nature approach across a different property rights regime. Um, and so, for instance, we were talking earlier about if you have um, a situation where a river or something has legal rights, how does it work within a trading regime? Um, uh -huh. And um, how does that change the behavior of users and management managers in the operation of the system? Um, from a practical perspective, that might be a really useful thing to explore in detail. Um, and that's actually, if you're speaking about my future research, that's one of the areas in the questions that I'm really looking forward to exploring. Thanks for listening, everyone. 
As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.